Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Drew McWeeny. If you've been a voracious reader of quality film criticism on the web over the last three decades, one byline you would have undoubtedly come across again and again is for Drew McWeeny. A founding writer for Ain't It Cool News and Hit Fix, Drew's savvy, witty, articulate takes and passion for film continues to shine through today, both on Twitter as well as his popular newsletter subscription service, Formerly Dangerous, a writer for stage and screen who's worked with everyone from John Carpenter to Joe Dante. Drew is a co-creator and co-host of the cult favorite podcast, 80s All Over, and has a number of top secret projects in the works. Friendly, supportive, and fun, it is an honor to have him on the show today. Welcome, Drew. So, Drew, how are you doing and how are you adapting to quarantine life or pandemic life, I should say? Um, I'm doing well. Uh, it's weird because I think anybody who, who writes or who works out of their house primarily had some sense of how this would feel like. I mean, this is kind of not terribly different. But now my girlfriend is here all the time. Now she never goes out. Now there's no screenings. Now there, So the things yeah. that... The things that you do notice kind of creep up on you. I thought, well, I already work at home. I already, you know, I'm here all the time. This will be easy. But it does. It really starts to creep up on you that there's just no going out. And this is the longest I've been uh, not in a movie theater since I was 10. I mean, it's the weirdest feeling. It is very strange to have that gap in your life. And, you know, I get for some people, I what are the national figures that people go like five times a year now? is the average uh, to a movie theater. That's certainly not the average for me. Um, I, I think obviously once a week at least. And it was it's a weird gap to just suddenly have. It really is. It feels so strange for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you been- work-wise, just, uh, you know, it's, it's you try to, I, I try to keep to some sort of structured schedule simply to, to make the days seem different uh yeah really easy to just kind of kind of drift right now i know yeah it's too easy to do that well you've been writing about film since basically like the beginning of the web i used to enjoy reading your stuff on like ain't it cool news and then hit fix before i even knew you so drew what was it like writing about film online back then and how has it changed well i when i first got a computer the first thing i did because I, I when i moved to los angeles uh to work i moved here writing everything longhand i had a partner a writing partner and he would type things up so like i would be the one that uh, we would talk everything through in a room and i would do the longhand work and then he would do the type dra- and that was kind of our process so for a long time we didn't even have a computer in our house and oh, it wasn't wow. until like 96 95 96 when we finally got a computer and I got online, and at that point it was basically bulletin boards and Usenet. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember the early days of Usenet. The first time I found a Usenet group where people were arguing about whether or not Harrison Ford was a robot in uh, Blade Runner, <laughs> and I was like, "My people! Oh my gosh, they they do this. There's a place where people do this. Oh my!" 
So I was very <laughs> excited. The internet was very exciting at first. And, and it was mainly, that was my, the big draw was it was the sense of community in the sense that, oh, I, I finally have a place where I can go. And there's other people who have the same interests as me. And we, it was CB radio. Like it was so personal versus corporate. And so the early days of me writing online were very personally motivated. And I never had any sense that I was trying to build a career. Ain't it cool was a reaction to Harry. I, I was irritated by my interactions <laughs> with him on Usenet. And uh, when he started his website, I would read something and I go, well, that's wrong. And I would write an email and I'd be like, you're wrong. That's not correct. And here's why. And then he would publish it. And I'd be like, no, I'm not writing for your website. I'm writing to tell you you're wrong, you dumb, dumb person. And eventually he baited me into writing for the website. And it became uh, something where I I already had all of this information and knowledge. And I just I fell into it. So. Those early days were very uh, – they, they were very much about whim and about what I was interested in, and um, then it became a job, and it was a job yeah. for a long time. So um, it's weird. Writing the newsletter now feels much more like those early days. It feels like when I write, I write about what I want to write about, how I want to write about it. It is not driven by advertisers or by an editor or by clickbait or by the things that I got so – hammered with for so long and uh it's been kind of joyous yeah for sure well congratulations on your subscription newsletter formerly dangerous for those listening who might be unfamiliar with it can you tell us how you kicked it off complete with that cool ode to jerry Maguire. well i i left hitfix um not of my own free will uh, okay. we, got, we got sold to a larger media company, and um, it was a real education for me in what a shell game all of this stuff is right now. All of the media ownership and who owns media and who buys media and how it all works. It's a shell game. None of the people that are at the top of this thing who are buying these sites are doing it because they care about these sites or because they care about the voices on these sites or because they they see an asset and they use it for whatever they can use it for. In our case, we were part of a a scam and yeah. they burned down a website that I had spent a decade building and they, and they did it very quickly. Um, and so when I got fired, I got fired because I cost too much. I was just, I, I was a grown up with a grown up salary and a family and they mm-hmm. didn't pay for that anymore. And, you know, as you know, in online media right now, there's no money. It's the, before the pandemic, there was no money, but now there's zero money. Um, mm-hmm. So it really, I, I am at a point now where, I had to make decisions about, did I want to do this anymore? And I realized that the only reason to do it is to do it the way I want to do it, to write about what I choose to write about, and to remove myself from what I saw increasingly as a publicity-driven process. Yes. Um, And I don't fault anybody who works in it because I understand how easy it is to work in it. Mm -hmm. But when I was at HitFix especially – um, I was working in publicity. I was not a film critic in the purest sense of the word anymore. And I think if you are participating in the interview process, in the junket process, in any of that, you're working in publicity. And it is and it is entirely and utterly tilted in terms of power towards the studios. Mm-hmm. Um, you depend on them for access. You depend on them for scheduling. You publish on their timetable. You publish what they tell you. You publish it under conditions that they set, 
there is no power in that relationship that belongs to the writer or the critic anymore. And it's so unbalanced and so broken that I realized I couldn't do it. Um, yeah. After HitFix, I, I was offered jobs doing it again, and I couldn't. I just couldn't bring myself to go back into that, having had any time out of it. The moment you step outside of it, the moment you're off the treadmill, it starts to feel crazy that that was what you were doing. Because I didn't get into this to sell movies. Mm-hmm. I got into this because I love movies. The con- the best conversation about a movie is after you've just walked out of it. You yes. know that. Yeah, no exactly. Then you walk out into the parking lot and you're with your friends and you're like, holy shit. That, <laughs> you see, and then he just did. And then you, for a half an hour, stand there just talking because you can't believe what you just saw. Yeah. That, that's not the conversation we have anymore. The conversation we have now is entirely weighted beforehand. It's all about the trailers and the advertising and the casting and the and the talk show appearances and the this and the that and the every, budget. Yeah, exactly. It's all built to now the movies in theaters and now what's next? Yeah. And there's every and the the ultimate version of that is film reviews. Everybody's so worried now about spoilers in film reviews because film reviews are designed to be read before you've seen the movie to tell you whether or not to go see it. Nonsense. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. Good film criticism is about the entire experience. It is about For the sure. way a movie sinks into your bones. It is about what we get from a movie. And you can't do that if you're talking around it. Mm-hmm. That's very I true. I think film reviews should be published the Monday after films in theaters. I think they should be after a, an audience has had a chance to have their reaction so that it's a conversation, not a lecture. And I think that that's one of the reasons people resent film critics so much is they feel like they're being told what they should go see. They feel like they're being lectured from on high as opposed to I have a base of knowledge and experience that allows me to set a context for a film conversation. Mm-hmm. And now let's that's all a critic is. You're just somebody who has a better sense of context or a larger sense of context, and you can do that work. That's it. I don't think I am any better in terms of taste or what I like than anybody else, no. and I don't think that my opinion should influence anybody else's opinion. I think that it comes from an informed place, and hopefully it can be part of a fun conversation. But it's crazy exactly. how, how weird people's reactions to criticism are now, and I think that's because it's marketing. It is in some ways. I actually don't read reviews until after I've seen the movie. So yeah. I kind of say the same thing. Like I'm flattered when people read them, but I'm okay. You can come back after you see the movie. It's totally fine because I want to go into the experience knowing as little as possible and just have an unfiltered reaction. Same what you were saying earlier, where you'd go out to the parking lot and, oh my God, that blew my mind, or it really didn't, and sit with it for a little bit. I used to hate it when you'd go to a screening and you had to have the overnight turnaround. Yeah. And yeah, and come up with your thoughts, or at a film festival when you have to do that several times. I would rather sit with my thoughts for a while before I write and so I know exactly what you're saying so that kind of helped inspire you for formerly dangerous yeah I I made the decision that I was going to um, publish something that was driven by subscription because at that point there's nobody else between me and the reader the yes. reader's making the choice to be there I'm making the choice to write what I'm writing 
Mm-hmm. You can be there or not. I'm not asking for your advertising dollar. I'm not trying to use clickbait to lure you in. I'm not trying. All of that is done. And I'm not going to do it on the timetable of the studios. Um, mm-hmm. And I I made a little bit of I took a step back uh, during this pandemic. I had a moment where I flirted again with stepping back into that system because I wanted to talk to a filmmaker about a film that was coming out. And I've known this filmmaker forever. And I, I said to him, hey, I don't want to because I always hate this. I always hate the idea that you're end running a publicist like it makes them feel bad. Um, yeah. When they're supposed to be in the process and you just cut them out of it. They end up resenting you. So I, I really don't like doing that. And I said to the mm-hmm. filmmaker, hey, I'll, I'll go to the studio and I'll, I'll set this up and then let's chat. And they were like, great. It's never been more difficult, and I get it. From their point of view, I don't matter in the same way anymore. I'm not in an outlet that has numbers that they can run. I don't tell them what my subscription base is. I don't tell them how many subscribers I have, and that's none of their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. It's I, I don't really care to share those numbers with them. What they should know is that after 20 years of doing this, there are people who read me that are people who – also then ripple through the rest of the industry. And yes. either you can take my history as my history and you can say, okay, well, we'll continue to work with you, or you can have it be driven by your publicity needs. And that's entirely what I realized was it became about, well, you have to do these interviews as well, and you have to talk to these people, and then we have to do – and almost as soon as they started, I was like, oh, no, no, never mind. So sorry. Nope, not going to do it like this. Um, I just don't want to do any of that anymore, and I don't want to work for you. And that's increasingly what it feels like is if you're going to engage with them at all, you're going, you're working for them. So I just talked to the filmmaker by myself, and I was like, that's that's the way that's going to have to be. If I end up wanting to have those conversations, I'll just reach out and have those conversations. I'm not going to do this anymore on the terms of the studios. And that is the name of the newsletter – Formerly dangerous refers to the fact mm-hmm. that they really hated me for a long time before HitFix because at any cool there were no rules. Well, I'm back to a place where I don't need them and I don't necessarily want them, and so there are no rules again. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not the same person I was back then. I'm not an anarchist like I was when I was young, willing to <laughs> things down to burn them down. But um, but there is an irony to the title because I I do think the thing they are most scared of is not having any ability to control what you publish. Yes, I agree with you there. You are so prolific. I was going to say, I can't believe how many newsletters you come out with in a given week. What is your writing process like? Do you just get up and write one of these masterpieces in a day or how do you do these? Well, I'm I'm constantly chipping away at stuff as I'm watching things, and okay. I'm working right now. Um, there was a podcast that I did for a couple of years called uh, '80s All Over with um, Loved Scott. Loved it. Yeah. And the, we didn't get to the finish line on the podcast. Uh, it just was unproducible in the form that we had it. And as much as I love the show, and as much as Scott loved the show, and as much as Bobby loved the show, um, I think it required all three of us to make, and the three of us couldn't make that happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So it just it, – it was frustrating, but I didn't – instead of getting frustrated by that, because I've had things in the past where you don't get to the finish line on a project and you have all this energy. And I I did so much insane work on 80s all over behind the scenes <laughs> to put this together and to build out these, the 
timetable for the 80s, and I've done all the research. So I'm I'm turning all of that into a book. I am I and I'm working on the book, and the book is 2,500 film reviews that I'm going to have to end up writing. So in order to do that, it's a constant process of there's always something open and there's always something being chipped away at, and I've learned to do that on one screen and then the newsletter on another, and so. For me, it's just incremental. It's just constantly chipping away. And when I have enough in a newsletter, publish. And then that's the, incredible. The book will get there eventually as well. And any any other projects, you just kind of you have to text them in. But I I have a real sense of if somebody's going to give me their money and ask me to subscribe to something, I feel an obligation to to give a certain amount of material back. And I try to publish at least one free thing a week so mm-hmm. that people read a sample and see what the newsletter is. But then I try to make sure there's some real meat and potatoes for subscribers so that they feel like, wow, this is for seven bucks a month, you're getting uh, a book. I mean, it's a a remarkable amount of stuff that gets packed into a month. um, And it's $7. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an incredible amount of work. And I was actually going to ask you about the 80s all over book. Because I was a big fan of the podcast, and it was just such a massively ambitious and very cool, though, undertaking to revisit every film released in the 80s. I can't remember where you guys left off. It was, uh, we got it to, I think, April 85. Okay, 80, wow. That itself. We made it almost halfway, and a little bit bit past halfway, and, uh, and yeah, and Part of what happened is, as the decade went, there are just more movies every year. So, mm-hmm. 86, 87, 88, it's like 330 movies a year. That's just too many, for sure. It's a lot when you're doing it every week. When you're And I love the format of the show, which was, um, for anybody who didn't listen, it was, we started in January of 1980, and we did every movie that came out that month in that episode. Mm-hmm. So some months there are seven or eight films. Some months there are 36 movies. It's just weird. And you learn a lot about release patterns and about the way those patterns have changed. And um, and so in doing all that research for the for the show, like I just I, I have gotten to the point now where I have so much research assembled on the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I realized that part of the reason we did that show was there's no source where you can go and just this is the 80s. There's a whole bunch of stuff about the 80s, but it's about the same 50 or 60 titles. Very true. Yes. And and there is no reference book. There is no one source that you can go to. So it's the first time in my life where I've ever realized, okay, I wanted to have this book on my shelf so that I could just refer to it. And since it's not there, I guess I have to write it because (laughs) there's a hole on my shelf where that book belongs and, uh, and I need it. So... I wish someone I else would do it. <laughs> yeah, twenty five hundred. Oh my goodness, are you having contributors? Because true, that's like a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I think part of what will make the book, um, what will give the book a, a voice, is the idea of um, from beginning to end tackling that decade and being able to talk about trends and being able to talk about yes. how things developed and. So I think if it's done by contributor, it's one book. I think if I do it, it's a different book. And That's I just true. realized, yeah, I just realized there's, there's, I, I'm in that unique position of I remember that decade vividly. It's the decade yeah. I became a movie addict. I went from 10 years old to 20 years old, and 
my memories are so vivid. I worked in theaters. I worked in video stores. I saw video stores rise and like so I was ground zero. And I think that that is you don't often realize what your niche is. But I think in this case, the, the clarion call came and I went, oh, OK, I have something I can offer here. This is <laughs> and it's it's easy to think of the 80s as recent. It's 40 years ago. Like when I was a kid in the 80s watching movies from the 40s, they seemed like they were ancient and <laughs> and had no bearing on my my life at that point. That's where we are. We're 40 years down the road now, and it it's actual historical work. It's not stuff that's current. And I, I can't believe how many times I'll have the same conversation with somebody like somebody will say, well, I remember because Raiders of the Lost Ark was PG-13. And you're like, oh, OK, no. And uh, you've got all of that wrong. But I, I understand how and I understand why. And there are certain stories that I would love to have just in one place. You can finally say, no, this is the story of the PG-13 or you know, this is the story of the Police Academy franchise. The, there's all these bits and pieces to the 80s that have never been really assembled under one roof. I love that. Like you were saying earlier, you can provide that really cool context because you've done the research and you remember it. You have the passion for it. So, yeah, I'm super excited. I was born in 81 and toward the end of the decade, I mean, I was already getting into movies I mean, I make this joke all the time, but it is true. I saw like Die Hard and Platoon when I was eight years old. Yep. So I remember that like toward the end of the decade, I was getting into movies. So it's crazy when I talk to people and they're like, yeah, you know, but that is so old. And you think, no, it was just like yesterday. No, that was 40 years ago. Yeah. I see. I'm I'm almost exactly a decade ahead of you. So for me, it was the 70s or my childhood and that sort of that wild ragged era of filmmaking and then the 80s were my coming of age that's where i went movie crazy Mm -hmm. i you had a great decade to do that with because it was the indie 90s and the the 90s had their its own vibe and its own flavor and i would argue might have been better for a, a hardcore movie lover in terms of just the depth of movies you got um because the yeah. 80s are the 80s are a wild, weird cultural wasteland. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of the 80s. Part of the the book, and I, I this is something that I'm constantly grappling with as I'm writing entries for it. But part of the book is is confronting the idea that 40 years down the road, the 80s are kind of indefensible in a lot of ways. There's yeah. plenty of that decade that makes me cringe when I I look at it. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the homophobia is one of the biggest, weirdest things that is still blatantly acceptable by about 86, 87, and yet shouldn't be. You would think by by how clearly there's also this gay countercurrent running throughout the 80s and there's a, a rise of gay cinema. You would think that it would have been outdated, but nope. It's pretty yeah. remarkable. It's, it's remarkable. It really is. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. In the 90s, I grew up with those indie movies and the art house films. I mean, I was also watching all the blockbusters with friends, don't get me wrong. But when I went to college, I designed my film school curriculum, the self-designed. And so my thesis originally was just going to be completely on independent film and Generation X on video. And I wrote this massive thing and I went through the entire decade and finally it was like, no, I actually need to settle on one movie. 
So I went with uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But part of me is like, I would love to just go through the 90s and do something kind of like what you did with the 80s. And I think it's what you were saying earlier with when you came of age and when you became super passionate about film. And I think it brings back a nostalgia, but you can also then look back at it with a critical eye. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you realize, like, uh, not only how far you've come, but how far film has come. And it's exciting. Absolutely. It's like, I, I love 70s film. And um, for me, one of my weirdest fetishes for film is I love 60s color. There's something about the Technicolor stock of the 60s where I wish the whole yeah, world yeah. looked like that all the time. Boy, if it all had the same color palette as Star Trek on TV, I'm <laughs> in heaven. Um, but the 80s are, like it or not, that's where I, I just learned everything. I mean, that's where I learned it all. That's where I sat in the dark by myself and worked it out and figured out what I liked and what I didn't like and what I – and watched people have reactions to things and learned how audiences worked. And um, my most vivid movie memories will always be the eighties simply because of, you know, who I was during that era. Mm -hmm. You're never at your most, I don't think you're ever at a more pure form than you are between 10 and 20 as a movie fan. Cause you're not going to be making movies. You might be making short films and things in your head, but you're not, you're not commercially even trying, even if you're a film no, loony, yeah. you're not commercially in that world yet. It's hard once you started moving into making films to ever have that pure love again. You may love movies still. You may be movie insane, but there's always <laughs> some piece of you then that's analytical or that's looking at it in terms of the business or how it got made or how it works or you, you can't help it. It's just the, the way people's brains work. So that era where you're just dizzy and drunk in love, that's the best, man. It really is. One thing I love reading – is about your adventures watching movies with your boys who are kind of in that age group right now. They are. It's yes. awesome right now. I know. And it's so cool to see like the Godfather or these movies you're introducing to them that they're becoming totally enamored with. So yep. what have you shown them lately and how have they gone down? Well, we just turned a corner I, in the last like six to eight months where I have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And the 15-year-old's always been very ambitious. Like, he's always um, had his – he's always wanted to see stuff a little bit older than he was ready for. He's always <laughs> he's always been that guy. The younger <laughs> one wasn't the movie nerd, at first, which is fine, I, which is great. That's He's got a – he's like a, got an engineer's brain, and he's super smart and very funny in a different way. And But lately, he has started to want to watch more movies. But it's interesting, only if they're more grown up. He's oh, like, cool. yeah, I, I like the, you know, I like superhero stuff. It's fine. But if you're going to watch something cool, give me a call. So it's, <laughs> it's been interesting. And uh, so they've, they've watched some stuff together. And uh, we just did Dirty Harry for the first time. Oh, uh, wow. And they, they've seen some other Eastwood. They've seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. They've seen High Plains Drifter. They've seen um, uh, Hang 'em High. Uh, they've seen Fistful of Dollars. They've seen some of the, a lot of the Western iconography. Mm -hmm. um, so Dirty Harry was a real switch for them, and it went down great. They loved it. Um, oh, cool. And they they loved it in both ways. Like I think they loved the thriller version of just Dirty Harry versus the Scorpio. But I think they also got that Harry's a prick, and it's not a movie that's really pro-cop at all. And so you they know. were – they were laughing at a lot of it. They got that it's pretty dark funny in places. And I think mm -hmm. that 
part of what I've always done, and one of the reasons that I'm able to have this relationship with them is uh, film is a way into a conversation. It's not the end-all goal for the evening. It's not show them a movie, then go away. Yeah. It's the film is the beginning of hopefully that longer conversation for the night. And then you can talk about anything like it's crazy. The conversations they'll have with you once a movie opens the door because they're not embarrassed suddenly or they don't feel like it's taboo or off limits or like it's a, an idea they can't approach. And so mm-hmm. as they're getting older, I'm finding that it, it's so helpful to have this rapport with them where you can show them a movie and then. They are up for any dissection afterward, and they want it. They crave that. Okay, now let's go sit in our room and talk for a half an hour about, you know, San Francisco in the '70s and the Zodiac Killer and this and that. It's, <laughs> it's funny what they get crazy about or what they get interested in. Um, but there is still a sense with the 15-year-old that he wants to be the the astronaut. He wants to be the one that goes first, and so he just had his birthday, and. Mm-hmm. His 15th birthday was a hoedown. It was crazy, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> what did you show? I wanted, I, I've been very aware of YouTube, which I have a lot of problems with. I, I think the yeah. algorithms that YouTube uses are creepy. And I think there's they a really lot of, are. yeah, there's a lot of weird indoctrination going on. And it's very easy to let somebody fall down a YouTube rabbit hole and come out the other side going, do you know what the melting temperature of steel is? And you're like, oh, no, no. <laughs> you were normal when I saw you last time. It's yeah. terrifying the way it works. So and I've talked a lot with him about programming and about the way um, the world is constantly working to program you. And as young men, we get a lot of shitty programming. There's a lot of stuff that gets dumped on us that is toxic and shitty that we have to work against. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to raise them to be good men, and it's not easy. I didn't always have all the tools when I was growing up. And so this year, that was the main theme in the films that I wanted to show them. So the first movie we watched was Train Spotting. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And uh, went down like a house on fire. It was so good. Um, yeah. And he loved the soundtrack. He's really into music right now, and the soundtrack worked for him. And Ewan McGregor is a hero in the house because he's Obi-Wan Kenobi, for God's sake. <laughs> um, and uh, that was definitely eye-opening. It was like, wow, look at him. I'm like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. That's the Ewan that we saw first. So um, It really was, yep. And uh, yeah, so he loved that one. And then um, he was born in 2005. And the day he was born was the first day of production on my first film uh, that I oh, made with Joel cool. Carpenter. And so I was here in L.A. They were shooting up in Vancouver. And uh, that whole shoot, it was like on the phone. Hey, how's it going, man? I got a baby. Oh, my God. It's, it was a crazy. That <laughs> was the craziest day of all time. Um, but because of that, he's always known that he's directly connected to that first film. Um, he's also always been terrified of that first film because it's a Joan Carpenter movie. And um, so after Train Spotting, we finally watched Cigarette Burns. And uh, okay. and uh, he is afraid of me now, which is probably Uh-oh. going into our years. <laughs> you know, it's good. Hey, yeah. you saw you saw Cigarette Burns. You're going to be home by curfew, right? Uh, <laughs> I have a valuable tool in my arsenal now. He is terrified of me. Yeah, um, don't mess with Dad. <laughs> that's right. He's like, man, Dad, what were you going through? And uh, he was very upset by a lot of it. Uh, and then day two, uh, he was here for two days. And then day two was a, um, a just a free-for-all. Uh, we started with Clockwork Orange. 
Yikes. Did that one freak him out, too? He loved it. And he he's been primed. He's seen Kubrick before this. So he's full metal. Um, He's seen Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was really primed and ready to go for this one. Uh, And 2001 is a longtime favorite of his from when he was a little kid. That was one of his first, like, big, oh, my God, this kid might be into this stuff moments. Um, so he, uh, he was hungry for it and then really didn't know what he was getting into. Um, mm. really shaken by it, but we talked a lot about it and I think he loved it, like had a really strong reaction to it, wanted something different afterwards. And, uh, so uh, we've been circling this one for a while and I said, this is the day fast times at Ridgemont high. Oh yeah. That's a good change of pace for sure. Last year for his birthday, he did Dazed and Confused because he was making the jump from middle school to high school. And I've always loved that Mitch has that journey in that movie where it's his first time being around the older kids and kind of stepping in. And we all remember that's a huge moment where suddenly high school kids go, yeah, come hang out with us. Mm -hmm. And for Toshi this year, that happened. He was on the baseball team and all the older kids hung out with him. And so I'm glad he kind of saw Dazed and Confused when he did. It was the right moment. And it kind of I think he really loved it last year. I think this one, though, Fast Times at Richmond High, huge success. Um, he loved it. He couldn't stop laughing at Spicoli. I'm <laughs> how well that character is aged. Um, Spicoli, least problematic character ever. God bless him. Um, yeah. He is decent and nice, and I love Spicoli. I love the fact that in 82 he was just timelessly written so that – we don't have those horrible moments in the movie now where you cringe and you look at them and you go, oh, God, if only they did Even Bill and Ted, who are fairly innocuous, they have I their – I know. They, the homophobia little jokes that yeah. are inserted. So You're like, come on. <laughs> yeah. I got to give credit to Amy Heckerling. And uh, Toshi's already a fan of Clueless, so this was his – so he did it backwards. He's like f- a fan of that one first, and now, oh, and this is where she had her big break. Mm-hmm. And – um and I think Amy is the reason that movie is so good hearted is, man, yeah. she really loves those kids and she treats them well. All of them, even the assholes get treated well in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he loves seeing Forrest Whitaker young and he loved uh, what I didn't. I, I'm always amazed by this because, you know, what this is like when you're growing up and you see people in movies who are older when you see them for the first time. And then you go back and you're watching old films and you're like, holy cow, is that Ronan yeah. was 20? And that, you know, <laughs> was like it blows your mind when you finally see them. So we're watching Fast Times at Ridgemont High and the whole movie. He's like, Dad, I know Stacy. Why do I know Stacy? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And I couldn't put together what he'd seen. And it was about halfway through the movie where I'm like, oh, shit, that's Daisy Domergue. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and the whiplash between Hateful Eight and Fast Times at Ridgemont High as oh the only gosh. two Jennifer Jason Lee movies that you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty profound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She oh, does wow. both those things. <laughs> yeah, she's an incredible actress. Yeah. <laughs> One of my very favorites, but wow, if those are the only two things you know, yeah, that's a lot. That's a big That's a big um, jump. Yes. And then his back to back, his double feature at night, um, we did uh Fight Club, which we've been revving up to for a long time. And okay. it was and it, it's funny, we actually got a, a special note from uh, the director saying, Please talk about satire before you show it. Which wow. we did. Um, it was important because that very is much. a movie that is very easily misread. 
I, I really was is. so relieved because as we watched it, he was laughing. He was having a big reaction. To, he was drawn in, certainly. Mm-hmm. But about halfway through the film, when we had a moment, we had to take a break. And um, I asked him what he thought so far. And he was like, it's great. I, uh, Tyler's an amazing character. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, he's he's an idiot, but he's mm-hmm. amazing. He's amazing to watch. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay. Yeah. You're not you don't buy any of it. And I think that's yeah. the real trick of that film is you if you watch the film and you know that Tyler isn't to be trusted or listened to, then mm-hmm. the, the movie plays for you as the satire it is intended as. If you yes. don't, then it's a Proud Boy recruiting tool and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I, it's one of the reasons I love the movie is I wanted to talk to him about that fine line and how you start out with things that sound great and things you agree with and things that make perfect sense. You, Hey, the things that you own end up owning you. Well, that's a pretty easy thought to get your head around. Great. And Tyler's full yeah. of those, but it's the way that leads you down a path that I really love in that movie and that it does so beautifully. It played, played so well to him. And that was of the entire experience. I think that was the film that landed on him the hardest that he's still mm-hmm. talking about. Oh, and then, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. And then we had an accidental double feature because I, I, he loves perks of being a wallflower. Oh, um, great movie. Yeah. Great movie. And it flattened him when he saw it. It was a movie that he really just, it, he's seen it several times now. He loves it. He can't even fully articulate why it just speaks to him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, um, told him that uh, he has said since then that he's been desperate to see the Rocky horror picture show. And I told him that, you know, at some point I'll take you to the theater when it's playing. Well, God knows when we're ever going to get the Rocky Horror Picture back in theaters again, or when that communal experience is ever going to happen that way again. And so um, after Fight Club, we had a meatloaf double feature, and uh, he finally saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show and and loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. Like, genuinely laughed out loud all the way through it and thought it was hilarious. Um, It really worked for him. Um, That's great. And it's interesting. When I saw it for the first time, I didn't get it the way – like he seems to get it and in the conversation afterwards all the things that were funny to him the camp of it and the exa- and the insanity of it he he twigged right into he thought one of the funniest scenes in the movie watching him respond to is the double seduction where frankenfurter seduces mm-hmm. uh, both janet and brad in their bedrooms and i was kind of curious how that was going to play i've never really seen that kind of material uh with him in the room and Laughed out loud, thought it was funny. Not a moment where he was even, where he even kind of thought about the gender politic of anything. It just played for him as a comedy and a movie, and it worked. And uh, he couldn't stop talking about Tim Curry afterwards. Like, oh my God, Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. my God, Tim Curry. Yeah. Um, so it was, and I, I think by the end of that, uh, he went home the next day and he, he has since been talking about all of them. Like they all went in and sh- and what a cocktail for a, a movie birthday marathon. Yeah. And what I love is, you know, it, they could be very heavy if you go from train spotting to, you know, clockwork orange fight club, but you did season in some really great comedies and also just movies that had that running uh, theme going through them of what it is to be a man in modern society so I think, yeah, that would have been really interesting to see through his eyes, for sure. Has he seen, because you mentioned Tim Curry, has he seen Clue? Uh, he's seen Clue, and he's okay. seen Oscar. And so he's aware Oscar, of Tim Curry uh, as a yes. force of nature. Like, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I am a big Oscar fan. I, the movie's okay, but Tim Curry and Marissa Tomei in that film. Oh, she uh, is so good in that too. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, are they funny together in that film? Mm-hmm. They're, they're so good. Um, I have a friend who used to host an Oscar party that um, he's a director and uh, his Oscar party was like the Oscar party. You would go uh-huh. and you could see people there who had been at the awards and who had won awards. And it was amazing. And there was a year where a friend and I got stuck on it. And I say stuck. Uh, we voluntarily were <laughs> into a couch for about two and a half hours. And on one end of the couch, it was Ian McKellen. And on the oh other end God. of the couch, it was Tim Curry. And listening to those two talk about the Oscars and everybody on screen and the fashion. And the I was like this, quite honestly, I don't ever need to go to the Oscars. I don't ever need to have another Oscar night. This is it. This is as good as it's ever going to get. For somebody who's I, I'm uh, the Oscars are my thing. But at that mm-hmm. moment, it was my Super Bowl and my birthday <laughs> and Christmas all wrapped in up in one. It was amazing. Oh, um, my gosh. And I do think I, I think Curry is one of those icons who um, you've got to pass on to your kids so that they pass him on. Uh, we got to yes, remember yes. that he's an icon. He's awesome. He is. Absolutely. Well, there's a question that I'd love to ask my L.A. friends. So let's say, let's pretend the pandemic's completely over. There's a vaccine. Everything is good. So let's say you're programming a triple feature at the New Beverly. Mm -hmm. You can even pull a Travis Woods and add a movie, like a midnight movie after the triple feature as well. So what is the theme and what are you showing us? Ooh, um... I am I always, anytime I get a chance to uh, to have an actual theater screen, I'm going to push unloved, unjustifiably unloved movies. Cool. Uh, I'm going to take, take movies that didn't get their due. And in this case, I already know what it's going to be. Because all Ooh. three of these are movies that I think murder if you're in the right room. And I, I've seen them play for people who had no idea what was coming. And boy, do they work. All three of these. So okay. let me see, which order am I going to go? Okay, I'm going to start with Birdie. Oh, God, that's a good movie. Yes. So good. So good. And you're going to know my theme as soon as I do the second one. Um, And these are all unjustifiably unloved. And the patron saint of unjustifiably unloved movies, of course, is Matthew Modine. So we're going to go from Birdie to Five Corners. Oh, that's a really good pick. Yeah. Five Corners. Oh, man. John Patrick Shanley, um, who... Also, Joe vs. Volcano, one of the great unloved, yes. unjustifiably unloved movies. But Five Corners is the one that still doesn't get the attention it should. Um, Jodie Foster's terrific in that. Tim Robbins is terrific in that. And then my my last one, we're going to come back to Mr. Modine with Orphans. Ah, now I don't know that one, so I'm going to. Alan J. Pecula. Okay. So already, awesome. Uh, it is based on a stage play, and it stars Kevin Anderson. It's Albert Finney and Matthew Modine, and uh, Anderson and Modine are two young guys who live on their own. They, they the house is they they're squatting. They're just squatting in a property. Like it's it. They are basically not functioning as people, and they get the bright idea. They're going to kidnap a rich guy and they're going to hold him for ransom. And it's Albert Finney. And from the moment he comes to that house, he realizes these kids are broken. And uh, not only am I going to get out of this. But holy shit, somebody's got to fix them. 
And it's oh. this amazing battle of wills back and forth between these two angry, broken kids and this guy who should, by all rights, just want to beat the shit out of these punks. Mm-hmm. But he recognizes something in them. And it is so great. Um, as much as I love Modine and as much as I love Finney, I, I push the film on people because Kevin Anderson never got his day in court. And he's mm. phenomenal in it. It is a great performance. A lot of people know him from Sleeping with the Enemy, where he's the good guy that Julia Roberts hooks up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he was one of those guys in the early 90s doing really good, quiet work that in late 80s that just didn't get seen. And Orphans is the pinnacle of that. So I would do that triple feature, and by the end of it, people would love all three of those films. I am so excited to see Orphans now. That is a hell of a good lineup. Let's hope they give you a call and do some unjustifiably unloved, for there sure. There you go. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much, Drew, for taking the time to do this and talking to me about movies. It was so pleasure. much fun. A real pleasure. And, Jen, I one of the things that I, I would like to say is that I really appreciate that, you know, it is so easy on social media and in terms of uh, writing about film to get caught up in both the cynical side of things or to get caught up in the just the noise of things and i think Mm -hmm. your presence on social media is so focused on film love and your joy of film and your constant joy of discovery of things um it's a real pleasure to follow you and i think your writing is great so oh you're wonderful well that is just so amazing to hear thank you so much drew i love following you as well and like i said it was so cool to finally get to know you on social and now to speak yeah. with you because I've been reading you for years. So this has been a real treat. Cool. Well, <laughs> Jen, I, uh, I, I enjoyed it. And um, yeah, please check out the uh, check out the newsletter, folks. Uh, I think it's uh, it is the most liberated I felt in a long time. I am so glad to hear it. And I'm stoked for that 80s book. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends. <laughs>